We're continuing in Psalm 23, and we are on the very last verse today. I'm going to cover the first half of verse 6, and then Pastor Tyler will bring us home next week. And uh, if you've been with us this summer, you know we've encouraged you, if you can, to memorize the phrases that we've gone through each week. So if you've been doing that, you've almost got the whole psalm memorized. So today's phrase, repeat after me, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. There you go. So we're going to read or recite all of Psalm 23, 1 through the first half of verse 6. If you've got it memorized, you don't have to look. If you do, I mean, you know what I'm saying. If you don't have it memorized, you can look. I have it memorized, but I am terrified that I'm going to get lost every time, so I still look at my notes. Here we go. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want... He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Caught you. You're about to sit down. God, thank you. Thank you so much for um, the joy that we can share worshiping regardless of what burdens we bring in. Thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus this morning that you would speak not just um, some data to our minds, but speak through your spirit to our hearts, through your word, whether you use this sermon or if it's despite this sermon. Speak to our hearts and move in your people this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you can be seated. Um, So as I've been thinking about goodness and mercy following you all the days of your life, my life, I've been trying to think about, like, what's the story about something following me? following me all the days of my life, and I keep only thinking of really sinister things. I can't think of it in any, like, positive connotation, and the thing that keeps coming to my mind is um, when I was probably four or five years old, I had just made my bed up, and I was reaching for Papa Bear, my teddy bear, to put on the bed, and this green snake wrapped around his neck right when I was reaching for it. So from an early age, that started a fear and hatred of snakes. Um, My favorite biblical image is the image of Christ crushing the head of the serpent. But since I was a little boy, I have this reoccurring nightmare, and it's always like a little bit different. The situation, like how I ended up there is a little bit different, but it's always some version of this. There are snakes everywhere, and I cannot get away from them. And I see a path, and as soon as I step down 
where there wasn't a snake, there is a snake there. It is like they are following me all the days of my life. And then even when I wake up, I know if it's close to bed, if I talk about snakes, see snakes, anything like that, I'm like, this nightmare follows me around. I will assuredly have that nightmare. So, um, you guys feeling good? <laughs> um, I, I actually think uh, it's supposed to have a slightly sinister connotation, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. But before we do, I want to do a brief recap of what we've learned about Psalm 23 so far. Because for one thing, we're to the end of it, and for another thing, I don't want to assume that you've heard it all. So just brief recap. The Psalms, all Psalms, are Hebrew poetry, which means, just like any poetry, it's rich with symbolism and imagery. And Psalm 23 begins by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. And that's the predominant image that David, the psalmist, uses throughout Psalm 23. He is saying that the relationship between God and us is like the relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. David wrote this psalm in Israel close to a thousand years before Christ, which means close to 3,000 years ago. And David knew sheep well because he had been a shepherd himself. And what we know about sheep from this study, most of us don't just like know a ton about sheep, but I've learned a ton about sheep over the course of this uh, summer and tried to share some of that. And what we know is that sheep are utterly dependent on their caregiver. If a sheep thrives, it is 100% because of the diligence of the shepherd. And this was even more true in ancient Israel because Israel is an arid desert region. So several biblical scholars contend that Psalm 23 follows through a progression of a journey of a shepherd and his flock. Um, this journey to how are they going to get food? How are they going to get shelter? How are they going to um, navigate through the valleys and get away from predators? So the shepherd starts by securing green grass and whatever we naturally have in our mind when we think about sheep and green grass, we kind of have to get that out of our mind. We have an image uh, here that I can show you. This is the green grass that the sheep go after in Israel. There are no like green meadows. It's actually little tufts of grass and weeds that the shepherd has to seek out for his sheep. Then he finds still waters for the sheep because they cannot, will not drink from moving water. So it could be a well. It could be a pool of water that's left after a flash flood. Um, it could be a small pool that the shepherd has actually made himself. He's taken flowing water and dug trenches and stilled the water himself, just like Jesus stilled the storms to make that water still so that his sheep can drink it. Getting to and from these things, the shepherd has to lead the sheep along paths. And in Psalm 23, it's paths of righteousness. And sometimes to get to these green pastures, the path leads straight through a valley, which were treacherous places for helpless sheep to go. If they fall over in a ditch, they cannot get themselves out without the help of a shepherd. So the valley in Psalm 23 is called the valley of the shadow of death. The sheep are protected during all this travel by their shepherd who comforts them with his staff 
and fights off predators with his rod. In verse 5, it's likely that David changes the imagery slightly. He may have been talking about leading sheep to the tablelands when it says that he prepares a table before them. Those would have been the high plateaus close to the sea. But he's talking about caring for his sheep the way a generous host would provide for guests with an abundant table of food, giving them oil to refresh their face and keep their cup uh, so full that they never ran out of food or drink. So now that we're in the last verse, verse six, we're most likely back to the straightforward sheep imagery. It's time to go back home after a long day of traveling. So uh, a few weeks ago, Pastor Joe pointed out to us in his sermon that even though sheep are very dependent on their shepherd, they're not stupid animals. They have an excellent memory and they can distinguish the voice or the call of their shepherd from other shepherds. So uh, that's what Jesus is talking about in John 10. In John 10, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, but he's talking about it kind of in third person and listen to what he says. The sheep hear his voice, the voice of the good shepherd, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So sheep have excellent memories. They know the voice of their shepherd. And if they've gone out to pasture that they've been to before, they will remember the way home. I read a story about a Greek shepherd who was saying... Uh, he had taken his sheep out to pasture a, a long distance to find the food and water that they needed, and he was resting his sheep, and he actually fell asleep himself. And when he woke up, it was dark, and his sheep were gone, and he freaked out. He was looking everywhere for sheep. He couldn't find them. When he got back, his sheep were in the sheepfold because they knew the way home, and they knew when it gets dark, we go home. So, uh, this guy told this story, and then I find out this is a common theme that you find among shepherds, especially in um, Israel. So in ancient Israel, shepherds walked out in front, and, they, and the sheep followed them. Jesus talked about this in John 10, and then in Psalm 23, in 2 and 3, it says, He leads me. So the shepherd's out front. But often in the evening, when the sheep were heading back to the sheepfold, the shepherd would actually go behind them. And this was um, strategic because the sheep know the way home. He doesn't need to lead them. This was a protective strategy because late in the day when the sheep were tired and their guards were down, predators would wait for one of the sheep to lag behind and go pick them off. That's when they were most vulnerable to attack. Now, if you think about it, Late in the day when we're tired and our guard is down is also when we're most vulnerable to attack. Most married couples learn really quickly, don't get into a really serious conversation right before bedtime. Am I right? Because what happens is your guard is down and you say something dumb without thinking about it and that conversation can turn to a fight really quickly. Can I get an amen? So you just, if, if you don't want the sun to set on your anger, 
you better not talk about serious stuff right before bedtime. Also, if you're struggling with some behavior, some specific sin, specifically an addictive behavior, whether it's drinking, whether it's pornography, whether it's smoking, whether it's YouTube, online gambling, whatever it is, that escapist behavior, you're far more susceptible to giving in to that temptation when you're tired because your defenses are weak, you aren't thinking clearly, you could even convince yourself that you've earned this somehow, that it's not that big of a deal because you don't have any fight left in you. So like the sheep, when we're tired and compromised, we need someone literally to watch our back. That's the image of the shepherd following us from behind. This is when the good shepherd becomes your rear guard. Psalm 121 is one of my favorite psalms. Lots of people love it. Um, Most people think of the beginning of it. It says, um, you know, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? But the last verse of it, uh, I think David is using that sheep imagery again. This is the last verse of Psalm 121. It says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. It's kind of another way of saying that if the Lord is your shepherd, then when you go out to find the green grass, to find the still water, and when you come in, goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. But It's hard to believe that goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life, isn't it? We look around and it doesn't meet our felt experience that goodness and mercy follow us. Our cynicism wants to tear that thought apart and write it off. But I wanna tell you this morning earnestly that it's not a metaphor that goodness and mercy follow you. And it's not talking about the afterlife. I want you to know, and by God's grace, by his spirit, I want you to actually believe that goodness and mercy follow you today. You're coming in and you're going out. But what are we even talking about when we talk about goodness and mercy? Um, And what does it mean that they follow me? To answer this, um, we probably don't need to talk about Hebrew words, but you know me, I'm gonna talk about some Hebrew words. Um, So who's really excited to learn some Hebrew this morning? Okay, okay, I was scared it was gonna be no one. There are six people that are gonna love this. So the word that we translate goodness is, it's a really good, easy Hebrew word to learn. It's tov. T-O-V, kind of rhymes with stove, with a long O. So can you say tov? Tov, you got it. So tov means good, pleasant, or agreeable. It's an, it's an adjective, so that means it's always describing something. Sometimes it's translated by what it's describing. So if it's talking about um, a maiden, tov might be translated as beautiful. But It appears 561 times in the Old Testament, so it shows up a lot. And the vast majority of that time, it's either translated good or goodness. And so kids, 
there's a Bible story that you should know that uses that word tov seven times, and it's the first chapter of the Bible. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it breaks it down into the different days. And after he created light, for example, it says that God saw that it was good. It was tov. The seventh tov comes after God created humans. And so it's in the very last verse of Genesis 1. It says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good, very tov. So we see that from the very beginning, that idea of tov is very important and God's work of creation was tov, it was good. But then just a couple chapters later in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin and everything in creation is corrupted. No tov, right? So if uh, you can add that to your uh, vocabulary, if, if you say no bueno, now you can say no tov, no good. We're gonna come back to that. So we're followed by goodness, by tov, and we're also followed by mercy. So um, even though we throw that word around a lot, I thought maybe we should define mercy because many of us probably don't actually know what it means. In fact, no one knows what it means anymore. I'm just kidding. Um, here's the definition of mercy. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. So in other words, it's withholding punishment. You deserve punishment, but someone's gonna withhold it. So if a cop pulls you over for speeding, but they let you off of the warning, that cop is showing you mercy. So if we think about it this way, it's kind of strange that in Psalm 23, the psalmist says, surely the withholding of punishment shall follow you all the days of your life. It's like that's a true idea. We think about Romans 8 and there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there is something powerful about that idea of punishment being withheld, but it's a weird way to say it. And that's because in Hebrew, the word that we translate mercy encompasses a lot more than just mercy. And that Hebrew word is hesed. It kind of rhymes with blessed. So say hesed. Great. So <clears throat> technically, if you're wanting to be really Hebrew, you would say chesed. Um, so uh, like, you know, sometimes you'll see Hanukkah written and it has a C at the beginning. It's because the way you actually in Hebrew would pronounce it is like Hanukkah. But we don't generally hawk things up when we're speaking English. So we can just say chesed. Um, it makes me think, I worked at this French bakery for a while and people would come in and they'd be like, yeah, I'm gonna get a latte, I'll get two of those cookies and then I'll get a croissant. And I'm like, dude, just, just say croissant. You don't talk that way. You're not impressing anybody here. So if you say hesed, it'll get the job done. So uh, hesed occurs 247 times in the Old Testament. So again, shows up a lot. More than half of the times that it shows up in our English Bibles, it's translated as mercy. But as you can see, it's also translated as kindness, as goodness, as faithfulness, or steadfast love. Most of the time when Hesed shows up, it is actually describing God. 
And specifically, it's describing God's affection for his people and his faithfulness to the covenant with his people. So it's a big concept. And many scholars say that there isn't a great English translation. So often what we find is when this word shows up in our English Bibles, it might be translated with more than one word. So um, in 1531, the first English Bible was the Coverdale Bible. He made up a word. He put two words together, loving kindness. That's how he translated it. Um, Sometimes in our English Standard Version, it's steadfast love. Sometimes it's covenant faithfulness. But it's this idea of God's being loyal to his covenant. But when we think of God being loyal to the covenant, we shouldn't just think of it like he's fulfilling a legal obligation. Because Hesed speaks of God's heart toward his people. The NIV of Psalm 23 says, goodness and love shall follow me. When I officiate a wedding, I always uh, try to point out that it's a covenant with one another, but it's also a covenant with God. That's why there's two sets of vows. That first set, the, the questions that the bride and the groom answer, I do to, that's a covenant with God. But then they stand and face toward one another and they repeat vows to one another. And that's the sickness and health kind of stuff. That's their covenant with one another. But when a bride and a groom say their vows to one another, they're not saying, well, I will, if you will, if you stop, I'm going to stop. They're saying, I will no matter what. And the reason why is because that is how God is loyal to his covenant with us. He loves us so much that he is loyal to his covenant, the covenant, I will be your God and you will be my people no matter what. We don't see that any clearer than on the cross. How much does God love us? So much that he'll die. So much that he's faithful, even on the days when I'm not, even on the days when I run from him or even hate him, he is faithful. And it's not because we did something to win his heart over or to earn his loyalty. God is faithful because that is who he is. He is tov. He is chesed. He is good. When we talk about goodness following us, when we talk about mercy and goodness, it doesn't just mean that good things will follow you. It's not like you pray the sinner's prayer and all of a sudden gold's raining from the trees. We know that's not true, right? But it's not less than that. It's actually more than that. Because gold, possessions, it can be taken from you. But the very goodness and the loving faithfulness of God himself follows you, and no one can take that from you. But there's another word that I want you to know about, and it's the word that we translate as follow. The Hebrew word is radolf, radolf. It sounds a little bit like Rudolph. Uh, Say Rudolph. There you go. You won't come across that one as often, so if you don't remember that one, it's okay. But it means pursue, chase, or persecute. So this is almost predominantly used in the context of warfare and enemies. Um, So kids, you remember the story where 
Israel, they're slaves in Egypt. And then Moses sets them free and God holds back the Red Sea. He parts the Red Sea and the Israelites leave. But then what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh and his army, they decide, wait a minute, I'm going to follow them. They redoff them. They pursue them. They're trying to hunt them down. So you can get the picture that usually this word is not good. It's kind of like if you were walking down the street with your friend and your friend said, someone's following us. It's not a good thing. So it's strange that David, the poet, is saying goodness and mercy are hunting you down. Uh, it's kind of the same connotation as the snakes in my nightmare, right? Like they, they're just pursuing me. But David is showing us something here. He is showing us um, that it's not predators on our tail ready to pick us off when we're heading in, when we're tired and weak and defenseless. It's not predators. It's not the bear and the wolf. It is goodness and mercy. It is tov and chesed. Uh, When I'm tucking my daughter Lucy in bed, she likes to play games and she made most of them up. And one of them is called Opposite Game. It's pretty complex. I doubt you'll be able to catch on to it, but pretty much uh, I say a word and then she says the opposite of that word. So I say up, she says down. Now probably if, if I say good, she's gonna say bad. And I actually tested this yesterday and I said good, she said bad. In the Bible, the opposite of good is usually evil. They're opposites. And the Hebrew word for evil is ra. It's like uh, what a cheerleader says, ra. Actually, I don't think cheerleaders actually say ra. Maybe they did in the 60s, but I don't think cheerleaders are actually saying ra, ra, ra anymore. But anyway, say ra. Ra. That's evil. So uh, yeah, that's why you don't, that's why you don't, say it, you know, at football games, because nobody wants to be like, evil, evil. Um, That just occurred to me. Uh, So, ra means evil, bad, or wicked. So, tov is good, ra is evil. And in Genesis 2, we see God giving instructions not to eat from the fruit of the knowledge of tov and ra, the knowledge of good and evil. And you know another place that we see Tov and Ra in the same passage, and that is Psalm 23. Um, We've just been talking about how Tov, goodness, will follow me all the days of my life. In verse 4, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no Ra. We will fear no evil. See, good is so much more than just a description of something pleasant. It's not like, oh, that movie was pretty good. Um, Goodness, the tov that we're talking about is a moral category. It's the opposite of evil. It's an attribute of God because God is tov. God is good. And I think the psalmist is intentionally showing us that we don't need to fear evil because goodness, the goodness of God follows us everywhere we go. But if all we do is look at some Hebrew words and discuss the practices of ancient shepherds, this is pointless. 
if Psalm 23 doesn't have any connection to your life today, then we're wasting our time. And of course, I do believe with all my heart that Psalm 23 has something to do with you, what you're experiencing right now. But I think it can't become practical unless we acknowledge a few things about Tove and Ra, about good and evil. Even atheists use the categories of good and evil, but they don't speak about them in a personal way. It's like they're just sort of conditions that we find ourselves in. But we have to acknowledge that there is goodness because there is a good God. And we also have to acknowledge that evil is not just misfortune. And it's not even the evil acts of certain people. It's a force moving against God and his people and his good creation. And it's personal. Spiritual warfare is real and there is an enemy of your soul and of our church. And we call him many things. We call him Satan. We call him the devil. But if we're honest, admitting that we believe in the devil can be a bit of an embarrassment, right? Because in the academic world, in the business world, in the arts, in popular media, people can kind of tolerate you believing in some higher power or being spiritual, but if you start talking about the devil and demons, it just sounds kind of ridiculous and it's not very respectable. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letters, which many of you are familiar with, it's a work of fiction, uh, but it's about a demon named Screwtape, and he's writing instructions to his nephew, who's a young demon, and he's telling him how to be more effective in his work as a demon, specifically how to deceive a young man. And this is what Screwtape says to his nephew. He says, I do not think that you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. And the patient is the young man that he's tempting. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. So see, what Lewis is getting at is the notion that Satan is silly, that the devil is just a guy in red tights with a goofy grin and horns and a pitchfork, that is actually a tactic of the enemy because he'd rather us not believe in him. He'd rather us be ignorant of him and not pay attention to him. Satan has no power to create, but he does corrupt. In John 10, in the same passage where Jesus tells us that he's the good shepherd, he tells us that Satan comes to steal kill and destroy. All he does is corrupt. And we've talked about cynicism a little bit today and last week because cynicism will keep us from believing that the Lord is really near. It'll keep us from believing that the Lord really cares or that goodness and mercy actually follow me. Cynicism is the opposite of childlike faith. It has the appearance of truth because it's like I'm seeing through things. I'm seeing what's actually going on here. 
But cynicism is the oldest trick in the book because it's the trick that Satan used in the Garden of Eden. Think about how he tempted Eve. Is that really what God said? God's not actually good. He's not looking out for you. He's just a self-serving egomaniac who wants to keep you chained down with a bunch of arbitrary rules. If you want what's best for you, you gotta look out for yourself. You be God. There's a lot that we could say about Satan and demons and evil and spiritual warfare because frankly, the Bible talks about it a lot. Some people talk about it so much that they have a hyper focus on it and they live in fear. And that's not what I wanna do here. Our good shepherd is leading us. His goodness is following us. He is in the valley with us. He's protecting us with his rod. So we can say, like the psalmist says, I will fear no evil. But we have to acknowledge that evil exists. That's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the construction of that Greek phrase, it can be translated, deliver us from evil, but it can also be translated, deliver us from the evil one. There is a real enemy. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus takes evil very seriously, but we don't have to fear it. There's a book by Dallas Willard called Life Without Lack, and it's uh, basically just a transcription from a teaching that he did. He led a small group in his church through Psalm 23. And multiple times throughout this teaching, he makes the audacious statement that you can live without fear. And I've gotta be honest, I didn't really wanna quote Dallas Willard this morning. I wanted to just stand up in front of you and say, you can live without fear. But it won't hold much weight because the fact is, you don't have to know me long to know that I still live with fear. That's why I have nightmares about snakes, right? Um, but I can say that God is forming my heart and my heart is changing to become more like that of a sheep resting under the care of her good shepherd instead of a sheep running from every loud noise. But Dallas Willard, who is a wise and godly man, toward the end of his life taught this. And I want you to listen to his words to his small group. This is what it says. What do you fear? Whatever came to mind, I want you to know that you have nothing to fear. If you doubt this, I urge you to ask God to give you a peace about this. Let me say it again. No matter what you fear, you can live without that fear. You do not have to be afraid of anything, nothing, absolutely nothing. Not death, not the loss of loved ones, not being without someone to care for you. If you will take the time required to come to know and trust God as he is, asking the Lord to give light to your mind, you can come to a place of perfect peace and fearlessness. Because God is with you, because God is with you, you can live without fear. Friends, it is not the fact 
that life will be easy if you follow Jesus. There is a valley of the shadow of death. There is a real enemy. There is real evil. It is not that there is nothing to fear, but because God is with you, you don't have to fear. I want that for myself and I want that for you. And it is only possible because Jesus Christ died for your sins, the thing that keeps us from the presence of God. He died to pay the penalty for our sins so that not only am I allowed into the presence of God, but God now dwells in my heart. And if you follow the good shepherd, he dwells in your heart too. And that means rather than running from fear, we can trust that goodness, tov, and mercy, hesed, the very goodness and mercy of God himself follows you all the days of your life. Let's pray. God, you are with us. Praise you, God, that you are with us because of Jesus Christ, because of the spirit in our hearts, you are with us. If anyone in this room doesn't know you, I pray that you would whisper in their ear that today would be the day that they come to know you. For those who do know you, who believe at least intellectually that we have a good shepherd in Jesus Christ, I pray that we can come to experience you more and live lives without lack and without fear. And we pray this in the name of Christ, amen.